Hey there, this is the part two of the Ian episode, and it picks up right after the trivia, which I know is easy, but it was just a way to bring up some cool things to talk about with Ian. So we're just going to jump right in here. Check it out. You know, I know I know the trivia here was easy, but we, we have a few more questions that are a little harder here. So okay. Let us throw a few more at you here. And we'll if, see if we'll... you bring up one of my favorite crossover rifles in my whole collection. Ooh. Okay, yeah. I got to remember that in case we don't. Hey, Tom here, cutting in. We never remember to ask about that. Sorry. I was asking Kelly this actually before the show, if, if he knew. This is a simple one for you, though. The LaBelle manufacturers, is there any difference to the quality and finish between the three manufacturers? And if there are, can you tell me, like, best to worst? None that I'm aware of. Oh. Okay. The French so has very high standards. And um, the guns all had to be parts interchangeable with all of the factories. In fact, the reason that the main reason that um, Remington's Bertier contract got canceled is that they couldn't maintain parts interchangeability with the French arsenals. Wait, that's one of the questions. Was um, <laughs> they they bit off more than they can they can chew? That people keep saying, and they had the part interchangeability issues. Um. And then they said they also had the Russian contract going on at the same time. So I can understand them being slow with production, but how does that cre make them create issues like the bore diameters being different and the front sights are improperly fitted? Um, I think the big issue was that they had to redo all of the blueprints for inch measurements for their own tooling. And then they still had to be parts compatible with guns that were made to a different set of blueprints that were all in metric measurements which in theory you can do, but in practice they didn't. Uh, yeah, you just type it in Google and it tells you the conversion. Yeah, easy. Right? I don't know what's so hard about this. Like, <laughs> you got QSCAM, just like switch it from metric to English. Problem solved. So these the Remington Bertiers were good condition, just not interchangeable. Like they weren't made poorly, were they? No, they were not made poorly. Um there were some issues. You you bring up the ones that are are commonly referenced, uh, the front sights, and yeah. Um, but the bigger issue, I think, was that they just weren't. They couldn't get the parts interchangeability with the French factories, and they kept getting delayed and you know, taking a long time because they were, you know, it was very easy to say yes to all the contracts and then figure out how to actually build enough factories to make the guns later. And the French got fed up with them and were like, uh, nope. We're done. We're out. Forget it. Angry French. For what it's worth, if any of your listeners know of one, by the way, one of the guns that I am still looking for for my own collection is a Remington Bertier that was actually adopted into French service, which are extremely rare, and they're easily identifiable because they only got serial numbers when they were accepted into military service. So okay, every Remington you'll ever see in the U.S. has no serial number on it because it didn't need to legally. And when Remington just sold them on the commercial market, they didn't bother to serialize them. Only the French did that. So yeah, I, actually, I have wow. one of the Remington trials prototypes, but I don't have a French army Remington. You know, that's a great little tidbit because, you know, you, you can see a lot of auctions where it just says Mosin and it's a Remington. And if I notice the serial now. I, I, it occurs to me, perhaps I screwed my chances of ever finding one. By now you're never getting one. Now everyone knows they're super rare. Whatever, I'll find them. <laughs> like, yeah. Or I won't. You never know. 
So for the Moss 36, do you think that the kind of dog leg style of bolt handle helps it shoot faster than just a standard curved bolt? Uh, marginally, maybe. Um, it doesn't hurt it. The intention is to leave your finger closer to the trigger? Uh, no, I think the intention is just that the stock is relatively short so that it's durable enough to fire a lot of rifle grenades without breaking. And so the bolt handle is more convenient if it's a little farther forward, so we'll just angle it forward. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I think it works well. All right, so you're an Allied soldier in 1918 being sent to the frontline trenches. You have an opportunity to grab either a Bertier 0715 or a P14. Ammo logistics aside, what do you take? Sorry, France, P14. P14. Oh, shit. Yep. And I'd rather have a 19, an M1917, but I'll take the P14. <laughs> if that's the yeah, I'm thinking the P14 with the rimmed ammo, it has its couple of uh, maybe negatives to some people. Yeah, but, but the sights are a lot better. It's heavier, but the sights are better. Uh, the reload is better. But yeah, I'll, I'll take the P14. Yeah, those are good sights. Now, you offer me a five-shot Indochina Bertier, and maybe the, the answer changes. Ooh, okay. That's a very svelte, handy gun. It's got five rounds in it now instead of three. And then the francophilia oh. might come out and i might have to go with uh with the bertier yeah i was gonna say maybe the m16 could help persuade you a little bit five rounds got a cover on the bottom it helps right. yeah all right so you're that same soldier that now has a p14 and you also get to take along a handgun with you do you take the mle 1892 revolver or the ruby 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 good choice I think the rubies are highly underrated guns. Like they're kind of like high points. You know, they're bulky, they're heavy, they're cheap, but they actually work a lot better than people think they do. Better than the the sort of the common lore would have you believe. Yeah, mine is my favorite thirty-two pistol to shoot out of all of them. Yeah. All right, francophile. Was it the cartridge? The powder or the actual labelle that was the most influential. You've been asked this before, but I'm going to tag on. Did the French share their powder recipe with anyone? Because I heard some people say they did, but I wasn't sure. Um, to the best of my knowledge, they did not. But kind of, I mean, it's kind of like how to build a nuclear bomb. It just gets around. Everyone was working on it. They didn't have to share it. Um, with smokeless powder in particular, it's not like this was an unexpected invention. People knew that there were chemical formulations that could get you much more energetic powders. The question was, how do you make one that is predictable and reliable and safe? And the French came up with it first, but everyone else was working on it. And frankly, once you're making the stuff and issuing ammo, it's not that hard for people to steal some. And it is the sort of chemical thing that you can reverse engineer. And so it got out really fast after, you know, the French tried to keep it secret, but it didn't stay secret for more than like a year. But uh, a lot of people say that like the label was not so influential because of the tube magazine and it was oh, a little the label was Technologically, the label is a crap rifle. Um, right. The label was adopted because the French, um, the French army 
wanted a new rifle to make it to take advantage of this powder immediately. And so essentially they just had to take the existing tube magazine 11 millimeter Gras of the 1885 Kropacek and, and just convert it to smokeless powder Lavelle. And they did. In 1886, they've got the best rifle in the world. And what is it, 1889, uh, the first Mauser system comes out. And a like much better round. It the Lavelle. It's so much better than the Lavelle. So um, much better. The French yep. absolutely should have taken their time, spent an extra year or two, because they were looking at like the Lee system and I can't remember which other one, but can you like if the French had taken an extra year or two and come out with think a Lee Enfield in a rimless eight millimeter smokeless powder case in 1886 or 1887, Ooh. they would have had a rifle that like they wouldn't have had to invent the Berthier at all. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so then it wasn't the right. So the powder was the most revolutionary thing at that point then. Yeah. Yeah. The rifle is a recycled, you know, first generation mag fed black powder rifle. And the cartridge is 11 millimeter gras neck down to eight millimeter. Which there are some clever elements to it, but it's still a crap cartridge. Um, You know, the thing with. Uh, with two magazines is people always bring up this issue of what if the bullet hits the primer in front of it and sets off a detonation. If you just lay out a stack of eight LaBelle cartridges in line, it can't happen because of the taper in that cartridge. They essentially lie flat and the bullets don't interface with the primers in front of them. And then they put a little groove in the base of the cartridge to capture the bullet tip should it start to try and go inward. You know, that's so, actually one of my questions somewhere down here was th- they made that change, I think, in 1912, where they added that that recessed rim. But was it again, was it a preemptive? Hey, we're stacking up r- rounds. Let's change it. Or was were people b- blowing up? Was it a common thing for it was know? not a common thing? They may have had. A, I, I honestly don't know if there was a specific galvanizing incident where they went, oh, crap, we'd better change this or if it was proactive. As you're loading it, it sounds it looks scary. I bet, like you know, the first time you load up rounds right behind the other, it, it, you can't not think of. Wait a minute. Yeah, oh. <laughs> it just so, doesn't happen in the label. Yeah. So okay, so it wasn't just people weren't blowing up all the time, and they said, "Shit, we got to do something about this." Correct. All right. Good. For the French rifles, they never have a safety. Was there ever like a? push or a consideration to have a safety on French rifles, such as the Lobel or Moss 36? Right. So first question, you are, I presume, a proper, well-educated, well-trained soldier, right? Sure. Just say yes. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Why would you chamber a cartridge before your officer tells you to? Okay. Oh, but let's if say you... he says chamber a cartridge, and then they say hold up, but now you have your everyone loaded up and waiting with their guns pointing every which way. Well, then you eject the cartridge if you're not actually going to shoot. And the officer will tell you this. Originally, this goes back to the single-shot rifles, where you're going to fire in volleys on command most of the time. And so there isn't really a need for a safety, because if you don't shoot, you just take the round out. And then it carried over into the later designs, where... There really was this expectation of you chamber around when you're going into battle, like 
getting ready to actually shoot. And then you're shooting, so you don't need the safety. And when you're done shooting, you take the round out, and so we don't need a safety. I mean, if you look at the early black powder rifles, most of them don't have safeties. Right. Now, once you get to repeaters, most of them do. And so the French are, are a little different there, but the French are always a little different. Yep. So you mentioned in your book that the French semi-auto plan progressed slower than anticipated, and so they moved on to start making MOS 36s in the interim. And I saw the prototypes MOS 38, 39s, the MOS 40s, MOS 44s, all the way up to the 49. So what was taking so long that it took a decade, over a decade or so? Right? Yeah, over a decade to, to get the semi-auto going. Money. Uh, money and political change. Like France had, I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but approximately 10,000 governments in the 1930s. Holy God. Uh, okay, not 10,000, but they had <laughs> frequent political changeover and there was frequently a change in attitude towards the military. Um, it was not uncommon for there to be a political attitude that the military is a a right-wing threat to the government. And we need to make sure, you know, we need to keep the military under control. We don't want to give them too much money. That sort of thing all massively hinders new weapon development programs. Um, I don't think it's that far outside the realm of most other countries. Because um, basically everyone was working on semi-auto rifles from before World War I. And not many of them actually got into production at the beginning of World War II. So think about, like, Germany did not have a semi-auto rifle going into World War II. They had a bunch of trials programs. Had France not had an armistice in 1940, by 41 or 42, they would have had Moss 40s in production, just like the Germans put Gewehr 41s into production. They didn't have the chance. Wow. So there was nothing, it wasn't a gun design thing at all. It was politics. I don't think so. I think, honestly, I think their design was really good. It was, it's very simple. It's very economical to manufacture. Um, you look at a MOS 44 or, you know, the, the ones you'll typically see are 4956s. They're direct gas impingement. There are very few moving parts. They're economical to manufacture. Like, I think they're really a seriously underrated gun, um, largely because they had 10 round magazines. And people look at it today and they're like, I don't, yeah. I don't want a 10, I want 20. Everyone else gives me 20. And they don't really pay attention to the mechanics of the gun so much as the magazine and the cartridge. You know, everyone else had 308, 762 NATO. The French were decided not to adopt 762 NATO. And so they kept their 75 French, which arguably is a more appropriate caliber. It's virtually the same ballistics at a significantly lower chamber pressure. Um, but of course, the ammo is harder to get today. So people aren't as interested in it. Interesting. Okay, I think we have a few more quick questions here on some non-French rifles before we get to our, our speed round. Okay. So for Mausers, which do you think is the best Mauser rifle cartridge oh. in terms of overall performance, recoil, accuracy? Seven. Seven mil? Yeah. Another, another seven mil. I think that's a general consensus out there. Which is worse, the French serial number alphabet font or the German serial number alphabet font? 
Uh, probably the French one. Like, yes, the answer is the French one. It's hard, yeah. Um, it's frustrating. Tip, stick to only collecting the Chasse Po, and you get to only have block letters. <laughs> oh, perfect. <All> right. <laughs> the thing that gets me the most, I've lost count of the number of times I see a gun advertised as a de-arm. Like, it's a de-arm <laughs> label. <laughs> Yeah, it's like you know, it's like looking at a Springfield Armory 1903 and advertising it as this is an Armory 1903. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up, which is worse? Another one: a Milsup rifle with mismatched parts, or a all-matching example that has a sporterized stock? Uh, sporterized and matching is definitely worse. I will I will happily take a mismatched gun that's in correct configuration. Absolutely. Yeah, it's something about sporterized guns that just make collectors cringe. I don't know. Yep. Yep. No. Is that right? Can't do it. I'm done. <laughs> and then you look and you see the front side is different, and then you you ah oh, uh, they went that far. Yeah, you're hoping <laughs> you can find a stock okay. for it. But... You want to know a horrific example? Uh-oh. Yeah. I have, I have an 1865 prototype Chaspo. So it's a gun that's actually, it's a paper cartridge, but it's percussion fired rather than needle fired. Ooh. And they made a couple hundred of them. And I have one that someone cut two inches of the barrel off in oh. front of, like they left the nose cap and they just lopped off literally two inches of barrel for no reason. Everything else point? is fine, and it's a matching gun, and they can chop the muzzle off. <laughs> God. Yeah. What do you think the reason was? Bul- a um, bulge in there or something? Brain cancer? I don't know. <laughs> That's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> terrible idea. I don't know. I, I mean, yeah. yeah. All right. What is the best crag version? The U.S., the Danish, or the Norwegian? Oh, I'm going to go with the Norwegian because of the cartridge. Uh, I think that's what you said, Kelly. He's good. Yeah, 6 gonna like... <laughs> And it's just like, so I'd rather have the Norwegian than the Danish because where am I going to find 8 by 58 Yeah, right. And U.S. crags are all over the place to me, and so it's just kind of more exotic and interesting to have the Norwegian one, which isn't necessarily fair, but that's how my brain works. They do look cooler. Yeah. Yeah. All right. One more we have. Do you think you would be, you would have better luck accurately naming more of the 17 Dutch Monlicker models or 27 Ottoman <laughs> Turkish models or all 22 of the Monlicker straight pull rifles? Oh, I'm screwed. <laughs> I'm not any good at any of those. <laughs> there's there's um, so many. The Monlickers are probably my best chance, but it's not going to be pretty. Yeah, those are pretty easy because you just go number one old, number one new. No, number wait, the Dutch, the Dutch Monlickers or the, or the straight pulls? No, the straight pulls. Oh, okay. Yeah. I can't keep track of, like, which one has the overhanging top hand guard and the half magazine cover versus the... Right. I, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, or, or the same thing, but the sling swivels are on the side and not on the bottom. Right, a yeah. new model number two. 
I'll get you with all of the Bertier models. Those I can cover. <laughs> Good. All right. I would hope so. Yeah, that's that's fair. All right. So here, oh, we were talking about this before. Here, what country had the best response to France's new smokeless eight millimeter Lebel round between '86 and '92? There were three, six, eight new cartridges: the thirty forty Krag, the six five Carcano, the six five Arasaka, the three hundred three, the seven six two by fifty four, the Patron eighty eight, the seven six five Mauser by fifty three, and the eight by fifty R. Gotta go with seven six five Mauser. Oh, nice. That was my choice as well. And you could ar argue that the rifle is the best, too. At this uh, point. Yeah, you could. Yeah. <laughs> That's... yeah. All the rimmed rounds are out, just straight out, which doesn't leave that many. Um, 6.5 Carcano is not bad. Like, I think there's a strong case to be made for 6.5 Carcano, but it's hard to make it with the rifles. Um, right. Give me a jungle carbine in 6.5 Carcano. Oh, Ooh. right. That would be, be nice. <laughs> Light, handy, but that's not your option. Like you don't ever get that option. You get rimmed 303 or an M38 that I want to love, but it just always malfunctions on me. We can get a nice cavalry carbine. That's a nice small fireball yeah. shooter. Yeah. But nobody picks the uh, M95s and 8x50R? No, not really. <laughs> I mean, so I think the reason is everyone's experience is 8 by 56 in the, well, the, the M34 cut-down carbines. Yeah. And those things are horrendous Ouch. to shoot. And in my experience, the unconverted 8 by 50 guns are a lot smoother. And the cartridge is lighter, but nobody's got the ammunition, so nobody has that experience, so nobody picks that gun. Yeah, um, exactly what you just said. I heard it was it's a great round to shoot, but where, where can you get it? Yeah. <laughs> and even then, okay, it's great, but is it better than 765 Mauser? No. It's still a rimmed no. round. Turnbolt is a better oh, option yeah. than a straight bolt. So, yeah. Yep. I think we come to our last one now. So, we saw your excellent speed deploy of the Hotchkiss Universal submachine gun. Yeah. And we wanted to know how much, how much practice does that take <laughs> to get that out so quickly and deployed? A bit. Uh, it's easier to deploy it than to fold it back up. Um, every Once it's folded, everything's under spring tension, and so you pretty much just have to hit buttons and stuff springs out into place. Uh, putting it back together, you have to do it all in the right order, and it's it's a little trickier. But it definitely does take some practice. And by the way, it is an absolutely terrible gun once you do that. <laughs> oh, really? I, I You okay. know... There was so many guns out around that time, and then I never heard of this one, really, so I guess that's why. <laughs> Weird. I wonder why that could be. <laughs> like, there was the Matson M50, the, the M45 Swede. Yep. Is it, those are all take, better, I guess? I would take, essentially, any submachine gun over a Hotchkiss Universal. <laughs> what makes it so terrible? Um, the ergonomics are awful. So, the pistol grip is... It's a C shape, and the part that's missing is the very front of the grip. Huh. The trigger is about an inch wide and not very good. Uh, the front grip is just the magazine well, and it's really close to the barrel, which gets hot. Um, oh, yeah. It's just... Yeah. So it sounds like a gun that was made to collapse into this small thing first, 
And yes, it was intended as a it was submitted for French army trials as a paratroopers gun. Right. So that was the main focus was making it collapse into a, a not ergonomics. <laughs> yeah. And what they adopted instead was the Mat 49, which kind of does all the practical amount of folding you need. You know, the stock collapses and the magazine well folds up. That's really all you need. And it's a much better gun. Did Othias try doing the speed deploy? I don't think so. I don't think Othias has been around when I've been shooting it. Didn't he? No, he was. Oh, I thought he, I, yeah, I thought that's what he... It's on his chat. I thought that was him filming it. You're right. You're right. That's when they came out to visit. Uh, I can't remember, to be honest. Shit, I was curious if, if, if like, you both did it, and, he, and then you, you were the fastest, so that's why you went... I was definitely the fastest, because I've practiced <laughs> it a bunch, because it's my gun. Um... Othias probably tried it, but I suspect we just had me do it on camera because we didn't have a ton of time and I already had the process down pretty well. Yeah, it seems like you do. All right, we have another couple couple more things here. We have a quick speed round. This is our a, a fan favorite here. We're just going to uh, right. ask a few questions. You just say the answer. Most of them are like this or that. And uh, one day we're going to gather all our guest info and and figure out some kind of pattern investors <laughs> yeah all right so i'll start with one here just simple cock on open or cock on close cock on close all right turn bolt or straight pull turn bolt. blued receivers or in the white receivers blued nice for the number four infield the Spike bayonet or the blade? Ooh, blade. Yeah, the correct answer is blade on that one. There is a, <laughs> there is a correct answer on that one. Um, all right, has a stock preference: finger grooves or no finger grooves? No finger grooves. They're always wrong for a left-hander anyway. Oh uh, shit! Uh, yeah, I didn't think about that. I'm a big finger groove guy, but yeah, I didn't think of that. All right. All right, another stock preference. Darker walnut type stocks or lighter kind of beach stocks? I don't care. Oh. Okay. All right. Stripper clip fed guns or M block fed guns? M block. Wow. Ooh, okay. I think we know the answer to this one rimmed or rimless <laughs> cartridges. Uh, I'll take rimless for 100, Alex. Thank you. <laughs> one day someone's going to say rimmed. One day someone's going to love it. They're going to say you could headspace off the rim. And they'll be British. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, bloke. Let us get talk to bloke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Rear sights, a peep or a tangent? It's got to be the peep, right? Peep, absolutely. And for the front sight, front sight protector ears or no ears? Oh, uh, I like. I like the ears for durability. I like the no ears for shooting so that I don't accidentally shoot using the ear as my front sight. So I will go with ears that are not vertical. Okay. Either a fully enclosed round hood or ears that are angled out to the side like an M1. Interesting. That makes sense. All right, that's it for the speed round. Now we're on to a general question here. What's the most fake thing you think in French firearm collecting? Like the Waffenants and, and Nazi marks of, uh, in the German world. But what gets faked a lot? Any markings? Wait, honestly, not much gets faked. 
on the French stuff because no one gives a crap about French <laughs> and there's nothing worth faking on them. Um, okay, so the most faked thing would be the CR39 underfolders. Uh, because that's what you guess. said. That's what you said. That was my guess. They're very rare, but there were some movies that were done about Dien Bien Phu where they had new stocks made and those things got out onto the market and people used them to make fake repro uh, underfolders. Okay. Next up in the general questions is if you could only collect one, would you take Monlicker actions like the Styrium 95 or the Dutch, or you can only collect Carcanos? Ooh. Is the Carcano not sort of a Monlicker action? Okay, yeah, it is, but let's say um, the Dutch or the Austria Hungary ones. I yeah, will whichever take, you choose. I, I will take the Dutch and Austrian. Rather than the Carcanos, I'm not sensing Carcano love. <laughs> uh, I can't. I'm conflicted about the Carcano. I think done right, the Carcano M38 is an excellent weapon. It just doesn't actually work that well, but in theory, it ought to. You know, okay. JFK was. You've got your two thousand yard tangent sight. Which was used by approximately what percentage of anybody ever? Like none. Give them a two hundred yard notch, right? Problem solved. It's simpler. It's easier. You're never going to accidentally shoot at the wrong setting. Done. The gun's short. The gun's light. It's got a cartridge that's not massively overpowered. It's got a six round end block clip that's actually pretty fast to load. Like I, I take that over most stripper clips. Maybe not all, but most of them. Um, ballistically, it's you could load it either way, and you could load it in the dark easily. Like the action's simple. The place I've been let down the most by Carcanos is with the cocking piece rotating while I'm trying to cycle the bolt. Hmm. So it it, it tilts out of out of alignment, and then the bolt jams when you try and close it. That's that's been my biggest issue with Carcanos. There's it. There is a clunky factor to them. Yeah, like if I could have a Carcano, an M38 Carcano, but with a like a 1917 Enfield action, that would be sweet. Ooh. Yeah, the actions are just just lacking on those. Yeah. All right, now I put this here as a little joke here. Would you prefer to fight the Jap on the Japanese islands or in the uh, the meadows of France? Oh. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I can't imagine I'm, choosing the islands. I don't yeah, know. I'm gonna have to go with the meadows <laughs> of like, Neither one sounds great, but we kind of can see the difference in the guys that came back from the two, and the ones who came back from France seemed a little less totally screwed up by the event. Yes, like I, I heard of a lot of stories of people moving to France that they found it so beautiful that they moved there after the war. I don't a know if anyone of... was moving to the Japanese islands after the war. Yeah, I don't think anybody moved out <laughs> to the island. Um, there was actually a significant migration of um, American black soldiers to France after World War One. Oh, interesting. Because frankly, they got treated a lot better in France than they did here in the U.S. Uh, yeah, and I guess if you could say that you fought for that country, they would they would be friends real quick. Yeah, right. There was absolutely like there was racism in France in the 1920s, but it was largely, there was more, 
I, this sounds weird to say, there was more nuance to it than racism in the U.S., where a black American was seen as an American, and the the prejudice against people was based more on a national origin, like you know, uh, black people from some parts of Africa were seen very differently than black people from other parts of Africa, and black Americans had very little serious stereotype acting against them. And a lot of them found France a much more hospitable place to live. And there was like, that's why jazz took off in France is American black soldiers moving to France after World War II or World War One. Oh, I didn't know that. That's a good tidbit. Yeah. All right. For these, rank them best to worst. For World War One, we have the U.S. 1903, the Monlecker M95 from Austro-Hungary, the Gewehr 98, and the and whichever Berthier you prefer. Yeah, any Berthier. Oh, any okay, any Berthier, Mauser 98, Monlecker M95, and, and it's 1903. So the 1903 is a Mauser. So we we can just combine oh. those two. Hey. <laughs> Seriously, it is. Um, so you've left out my favorite of these actions, which is the 1917 Enfield. Yeah, we did that on purpose. Uh, he, he made, he made oh. me take it out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's too easy. That's easily number one. I'm, I'm going to drop the M95. That's that's our low-hanging. Low Sorry, line. Aaron. Um, which leaves me with either a Mauser action or Berthier action. Oh, so my favorite Berthier would be the M16 Indochina because it's super cool and sexy. And you did kind of say you would take it over a Mauser, though, didn't you? Yeah. God, that's a really difficult choice. How many people are going to see me? <laughs> <laughs> you could hide it. Um, honestly, I think I have to go Mauser, and it, it has to just be the cartridge. If I could take... The 98 or the 1903? Which Mauser? <laughs> Um, the 1903 <laughs> sites are terrible, so I will yeah. go with a Car 98 AZ. Oh, oh, the, I like that. The best short Mauser for a span of like 40 years, you know. Thank you. Yes, that is a good one. And so I heard, I heard you say it. Do you say AZ or A? Because I know there's controversy there. Yeah, I want the World War One one with the little stacking swivel on the front. We we had uh, Karim and Steve's on, and I said AZ because that's what the gun is mostly referred to as collectors. You know, they say that, and they kind of hand gave me the business. Yeah, they shut that down. Uh, I will play the defensive card that I collect French guns, and so I'm not required to know the nitpicky <laughs> details of the German nomenclature. So. I will go with whatever Karim and Steve say, but <laughs> actually go check in the book. True. All right, so in that same vein here, semi-autos, a G43, an M1 Garand, SVT40, or a Moss 40? I'll give you one of those French ones. M1. M1. That's me. M1, yeah. Now, I mean, our friends were asking, what if the G43 was made with the same quality as the M1. Nope, nope don't care. And oh. Frankly, Sorry, the, Zeb. I might be more tempted. I, I, I will take the SVT over the G43. 
Yeah. Hmm. They were popular. Great gun. No. They like to tear themselves apart. Um, but the M1 head and shoulders above all of them. Like, we got that thing right. Yeah. And where does the Moss 40 or Moss 44 fit in that ranking? Um, well, so the, the issue with the Moss 40 is it's not going to be reliable because they only made 50. So while if this was a real choice, I would immediately and unequivocally take a Moss 40 because I'll never actually have a Moss 40. And I'd love to have a Moss 40. <laughs> Um, it was probably a fine rifle, uh, on its technical merits, it's a stripper clip loaded five round gun and the stock's going to be a little uncomfortably short for me. Uh, so I will take the M1 over it. Very nice. Very good. Frankly, even a 496, I can reload an M1 faster and like, yeah, I just like yeah. the M1 a lot. They just work. They do work really Reliable. well. All right, last one of the quick questions. This is a thumbs up or thumbs down. The Italian Salerno method of re-sleeving barrels, ah. like for the 6.5 Vetterly conversions. I will go with thumbs down because of the work that I'm doing on the finish guns. Ooh. Because they tried the Salerno conversion and it was not successful. Uh-oh. Like, really? Like, vi like, violently unsuccessful or just on the drawing board kind of? They tried it for two years, and they're like, this, this is a bad idea. Let's do something else. If you've seen the, the Finnish M91s that are marked P26 and P27 on the barrels, those are all Salerno conversions. Salerno. Okay. And so do you, do you think those Vetterly conversions are safe to fire? We all know about CNR Arcel's infamous video. Um, I haven't shot mine. I have, like, I have a lot of guns I could shoot. I have no particular need for one of them to be an, uh, a Vetterly in 6.5. Um, <laughs> I'll just leave that for someone else to play with. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I shot my 8mm uh, LaBelle rechambered Gras once for video, and I don't need to do that again. Uh, the, the black powder actions that are rebarreled for smokeless powder, like, I don't know, they probably work most of the time, but I'll let someone else be the guinea pig on that. I can see that. There's a there's a really big difference in pressure between smokeless powder and black powder. All right. I was reading about the Moss factory workers during occupation were able to hide uh, key machinery from the Germans, and so they couldn't produce the 1935 S's, I believe. So whenever I hear like stories like that, even though I hear it in, in a book or something, I, I always think maybe, maybe not, because I have a hard time believing these these FUD lore and stories, you know? So uh, yeah. are you more of a, a believe it until it's proven false guy or a like skeptical unproven, until proven true fella? My attitude toward that sort of thing is largely colored by how viable I think the story is to begin with. If it seems like something a claim that just makes sense from everything else I know, I'm a lot more willing to believe it until I until proven otherwise. If it's something that, that just doesn't seem to make sense to me, then then I want to see proof before I'm willing to, to support it. That's kind of a very waffly non-answer, but... <laughs> All right, so we'll see what you believe because we do have a new segment here called True Shit or Bullshit. 
Oh, okay. We've got some of these little stories. Like, we'll warm up on the, the famous ones. So Easy stuff. Yeah, Kelly, what's this? You you want to give some of these so, yeah, well, the I, stupid famous ones? I can cover these these all-time classics, <laughs> like the Emlyn Garan ping that the soldiers would hear, and then they could charge the enemy with, like, a bayonet charge or something like that. Pretty sure that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So loud. Another similar one is the Japanese rifle dust covers were loud and clanky, so the soldiers would toss them away in the field so they could sneak around. Definitely bullshit. <laughs> and yeah. then the, another classic one is the low number M1903 Springfield should not be fired because it could blow up. Uh-oh. God, I'm not even getting into that one. <laughs> <laughs> all right, yeah, so those are all bullshit, or you can argue some of them, but there are some French ones. Now, I heard that, that French rifles were often stuck together by idiots via the bayonet hole, and that's the reason that they made that update. Is that true that it often happened? Uh, no, it did not often happen. <laughs> <laughs> Just like dumb college kids. I guess yes. enough for them to put in a relief hole. And they almost certainly received a severe beating from their sergeant. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine you have to go explain that. Sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, this is another French. The French soldiers on horseback or motorcycle would regularly lose their bolt plug and firing pins. And that's why they made that plug uh, and receiver notch update. So that is not a regular thing, but it did absolutely happen because I saw the the actual memo from the unit to the factory explaining it. And that is why they changed the, the, the factory the, or the bolt plug cool. design. Oh, that's cool. And I can only imagine, because that memo was something like, again, it's in the book. I don't remember it off the top of my head exactly, but it's like we lost 20 of them and we found 13 or something. And I oh, can just picture funny. it. This entire troop of French cavalry on their hands and knees, crawling in a line through a field with some sergeant <laughs> yelling at them, we're not going back to base until you find every goddamn firing pin. Oh. <laughs> and they never did. <laughs> and I'm sure they were cursing the gun at that point. Yes, probably. Yeah, And the sergeant and the <laughs> seven idiots who weren't able to find theirs yet. And Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Wow. Another quick French one. There was a limited run of Berthier carbines made with safeties. Mm, wrong. No. Uh, there oh, are a limited number of Berthier carbines that were modified to have safeties by sporting users in like commercial ownership. But no, there was not a limited run from the factory. Well, all right. How about N-marked guns mean you could shoot all modern PPU 8mm LaBelle out of them. That is true. However, you can also shoot modern 8mm LaBelle PPU out of non-N-marked guns. <laughs> uh, the, N, the thing the N lets you do is shoot the, like, the 1948 surplus, which you don't want to shoot anyway, but you can if it's N-marked. Okay, I think we have one last French one. So this is about the Remington Berthier contract. The lore is that 
Although Remington puts a lot of blame on labor strikes and equipment delivery delays for them missing the numerous big contract deadlines with the Russians and the French, the story is that they were paid by the Russians to prioritize the M91 contract over the Berthier contract in 1950. Oh. I'm not sure, honestly. I don't what, think they would have been... put it past the Russians? I don't know that they would have been paid by the Russians, but the Russian contracts were a lot bigger. And so they may have just made that decision on their own. But I don't know. Now, what about, similarly, the Remington, Remington was paid by the Germans to slow down and screw up the Berthier contract. I'm pretty sure that's bullshit. <laughs> I don't think Remington had a good mechanism for getting paid by the Germans. and I think we'd know about it if they did. <laughs> yeah, that'd be very controversial if that happened. Yeah. Oh, the Germans yeah. involved in something controversial? Holy yeah. shit. The appendix on the Zimmerman telegram. P.S. Please <laughs> tell Remington. <laughs> okay. Now we have some from countries that are not France. So for this one, it is Finland. And the question is, were Arasakas used in great numbers by the Finnish Civil Guard? Yes, but not for very long. By the mid-late 20s, they'd standardized on, on the Mosin, and they were getting rid of Arasakas. Um, so how many on, Arasakas yes. around? Like, what, what numbers are we talking? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, I can find those numbers somewhere, but I don't know them by heart. I thought like tens, or tens of thousands or something like that. Wow. Definitely tens of thousands. I don't wow. know that it was hundreds. Yeah. I didn't even realize it was... That much. I don't think of Arasaka as a, a finish. See, I need the book. So, yeah, it's because <laughs> the Russians had a bunch of Arasakas, like hundreds of thousands of Arasakas. And the Russians tended to, when they could, use them in second line duties so that the Mosins could go to the front line for standardization. And so there were a fair number of, of wow. occupation troops in Finland who had Arasakas. Wow. And then somehow, mysteriously, we finish Arasaka's in about 1917. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, the next one says the Russians had tons of Arasaka's and rechambered a substantial number into 762 by 54R. No, they were not rechambered. Well, not by the Russians. Other <laughs> There was someone else who rechambered them, but it wasn't the Russians and it wasn't 54 rimmed. Well, these Arasaka's got around. Yes. Uh, what happened after the Finns got them, the Finns uh, let a lot of them go, sold them, or gave them to Estonia. The Estonians had a lot of British equipment, and the Estonians actually rechambered a, a significant number of Arasakas to 303 British. Well, that'd be cool to find. And I plan to film one of those next year in Estonia, because I will be in Estonia to do some filming. I will look forward to that, because that seems like a cool rifle. Me too. I've never seen one yet, and I can't wait to. All right. Next up is Germany. So machine guns were not allowed to be owned by the Germans after the Treaty of Versailles. And so German, Germany made them anyway, but gave them alternate or, like, code names. Uh, they could be made, but in limited, or they could be possessed, but in limited numbers. And so, yes, their development was largely done by shell companies outside of Germany, and they were given designations to make them look like they were pre-war designs, like the MG-13. Oh, shit. This one I 
think I know. The turkey forestry carvings were made in an odd caliber on purpose to prevent stolen guns from being useful. That is the story, yes. As far as I know, it is true. I have not come across any information that suggests otherwise. Hmm. That's um, okay. the, guns, the guns were rebuilt with Mauser, basically Mauser hardware, uh, barrel bands and nose caps. And they were used for Turkish, uh, basically forest rangers, some sort of gendarmerie. And the idea allegedly was if they get ambushed and their rifles stolen, it doesn't do anyone much good because it's hard to get eight label ammo. Now, I suspect there's also a significant element of they're already in eight label, and so we'll just leave them there because these aren't right. know, these aren't soldiers going into combat. They're freaking guarding trees. So they're probably not going to be shooting much. So why bother rechambering them? And the fact that it's kind of a hard to get caliber is just a nice bonus. Makes sense. Uh oh, look oh. what it is. All right. Hey. Next up, we have the You Can't Shoot That Shunny Frio of True Shit <laughs> or Bullshit. And the first one is You Cannot Shoot Modern 77 by 58 or anything but light reloads in a last-ditch Type 99. I would say wrong. Those guns are mechanically every bit as strong as the early ones. Yeah. We were hearing that a lot. Uh, overheard of that one of the gun shows, too. Like, they said, oh, that's a last-ditch. Don't bother. You can't shoot those. That's right. I'll give you $100 <laughs> for it. Yeah. It, it wasn't the guy selling it, unfortunately. There's a um, lot of overlap from trainers in this sort of lore. Yes. Yeah, that's what we keep thinking. And plus, they don't look great. The last, Some of the last ditches don't look too great. Oh, the worst-looking rifle I own is, I mean, it's beyond last ditch. I have one of the um, Type 99 special carbines. Oh, that is, is, oh yeah. Cast Holy iron, crap. is that that one? Oh, yes. Cast <laughs> iron receiver. On this, so some of them had a cast iron receiver, but then like standard 99 nose cap, trigger guard, other parts. This thing, everything's cast iron except the barrel. Like the wow. butt plate is cast iron. And oh my God, it, it looks terrifying. <laughs> and you know what? It Intellectually, is. I know that that should be a safe gun to shoot, but we're never going to know mm. for sure. <laughs> so I'm going to the trigger on it. Oh, you got a string. Yeah. Like, but what do I have to gain from it? You know what? I can go shoot <laughs> any other 99 rifle, and it's going to be just the same. Um, it's like uh, Patrick Hernandez, one of the big guys on the gun boards, French Forum, regularly shoots his Curassier, um Cartier. And I've got one. I don't shoot mine, because you know what? I shot his, and it feels exactly like every other M16 Bertier or 92 carbine. Yeah. And those are fun to shoot anyway as much so you took the risk already that's enough you don't have to yeah exactly <laughs> well speaking of not shooting the next you can't shoot that sunny is you can't shoot that sunny you can't shoot anything including light reloads in an italian veterly chambered in 6.5 so hang it on the wall i mean i'm not gonna <laughs> you're welcome to i'm yeah, sure so some of them will work like well, the consensus is at least modern PPU. You definitely don't want to shoot in those things. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, 
the Italians wouldn't have issued them if there was actually a that sort of catastrophic danger at the time. But at the same time, I did see CN Arsenal blow up two of them. And I looked at that and I'm like, that's a black powder receiver in a nice high pressure smoke, excuse me, smokeless cartridge. I don't need to be the test case for that. All right. And then we have one more. And that is the, you can't shoot that, Sonny. You can't shoot regular PPU 8mm Mauser out of any Gewehr 88, 8805, or 8805-14, unless the receiver has been updated. Oh, I'm Honestly, sorry, and regardless of the update. This is a subject that I am not comfortable with yet. Like I haven't done enough research into this to know exactly which types of ammo and which types of 88 are compatible with each other. Um, and that goes doubly, like, I don't, well, I have an 8805, but it goes doubly for the Hanyangs. Like, I'm just not sure. Yeah, right. So, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's funny, we talk about, you know, being careful about this, and then I look at my pile of Chinese mystery pistols that are simple blowback in Tokarev caliber. <laughs> like, <laughs> they all survived. Yeah, they'll be yeah. fine. We have a we have one gun in the Warlords book where the frame is visibly significantly bent from the slide slamming into it. But, <laughs> uh, that's great. <laughs> but it didn't break. Like it didn't come flying off the back. So must be fine. Yeah. So I've got two of my own won't shoots, just from my own sort of my own personal experience and and you know. Biases. So one of them is an 1866 Henry. Like I'm pretty much done with shooting Henrys. And that's because I had a tube <laughs> magazine nation in one. Oh, I remember and that video. I had a whole video on that. And I still have a chunk of 45 Colt uh, cartridge case in my chest from that incident. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't an original Henry. It was At one what of the point did it, how did it detonate? What was the, um, the story behind that? First off, straight up, this is my fault. Uh, it's not just something the gun did, but I was reloading it, and I loaded the magazine tube about halfway full and then just let the follower drop on it. And oh. there were flat nose bullets, and they were flush primers, but the impact was enough to detonate two rounds in the magazine tube anyway. Wow. And yeah, and so shrapnel came flying. It didn't. Well, it didn't sort of, like, the cartridges exploded. The gun didn't because there's a big open slot in the magazine tube, so it just vented out that. Okay. Um, the gun is basically in perfect condition still, uh, but a bunch of brass shrapnel came out of the magazine tube, and one chunk of it went into my chest and is still there. And uh, the thought of if I had my hand over that particular spot in the magazine tube terrifies me because it would have just... It would have been really, really bad for my hand. Um, and it was he just kind of shot play. himself. Yeah, I just I don't need to shoot Henry again. Stick my yeah. hand on that magazine, which isn't fair. Like, it's not you know that is not a a proper calculated risk. But I don't care. Well, I'm I, just not going to do it. I get it. I I think I'd avoid a Henry's at that point. Yeah, stick to um, gate loaders. The other is the Lee Navy. <laughs> Uh-oh. Why? Familiar with this? There was an incident. I didn't I didn't prep this, so I don't have the exact details on me, but um there was a guy years ago who was killed by a Lee Navy. He was shooting reloads because 
go find six Lee Navy ammo. Um, I think he had made brass from 220 Swift, just sort of the accepted way to do it. And for some reason, the round was over pressure. Um, and the Lee Navy doesn't have really good gas handling, and it blew the extractor out of the bolt, kind of bananaed it up out of the bolt, and it went through his forehead above his nose and killed him. Oh, my God. I saw, I found a second incident like a year later of another guy at the range who had the same thing happen, was a little less energetic, and the extractor basically bounced off the exact same spot on his forehead and left a really nasty welt. And I'm just well, like, I've heard of that. So, yeah. Well, well that and the price, I'm not going to get one of those right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so for a while, oh I was planning on doing a destructive test sort of video. And I actually have like a crappy sporterized Lee Navy that someone gave me for that project. But oh. the side of it just never came together and I've never done it. And I don't know, maybe I still will at some so, point. So, yeah, but... if you get the ammo, would you do it? Oh, yeah. I'd totally yeah. do it. Oh. With a string and a tire kind of thing. Yeah. That'd be uh, cool to see. And frankly, what I would do, what I would want to do with that is overload the ammo progressively to see, like, at some point, it will blow. What you know, What's the safety margin on this thing? Um, you have to put, there's ballistic a of... gel, put ballistic gel all around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll get one of those ballistic dummies that that all the really popular channels seem to have. Yeah, put one of those behind it. To catch yeah. the extractor or whatever it is that blows out. But speaking of blowing up, the last true shit or blue shit, uh, blue shit or or bullshit, is the U our U.S. model 1917s blew up as much or even more as the 1903s. I don't think so. I've never heard of that. But there's some story going around that they looked at the numbers of like ammo blowing up 1917s and they were, it was almost as many or just as many, but they didn't make a big uh, deal about it. If that's true, that would be an ammo issue rather than a heat treat gun issue. True. I don't know. We, there was some pretty crap tasks ammo in World War One. Like there were a lot of issues with the Ross with really crappy ammo. And that Ross never got over there, rep, never had a great reputation. Yeah. Yeah, I got screwed by that. Yeah, yeah, they really did. Okay. Well, if you're up for it, I think we have a few user-submitted questions. And sure. most of these are easily Googleable, but I think they just kind of wanted to have the expert on French firearms answer their questions, so <laughs> we went ahead and accepted them. Okay, have, I'll do my best. The guy that wrote the book on French firearms can answer your questions. It's amazing. Maybe. And the answers might even be true. We'll find out. <laughs> First up, the question was, I'm trying to confirm if my label is 100% matching, but I don't know if some parts should have serial numbers but were wiped or just worn away. Which which parts do I need to be looking at to determine all matching label? Uh, let's see. You're going to... Hold on one sec. Let me just grab a label and double check. No, oh, perfect. See, this is a good ad for his book because this is exactly what I would go to his book for and take a look at and find. Yeah, to buy the book. Yes. And in fact, I have a two-page spread in the book that shows the serial numbers on each part of a serial numbered Oh, see. So... I don't remember the stuff. I just know where to look 
for the stuff. See? <laughs> uh, all right. So it is the stock, the barrel, the floor plate attached to the trigger guard, but it's actually the floor plate is numbered. The front hand guard, the bolt handle, and let's see, and the bolt head, I believe, is not. So there's no serial number on the receiver. That's that's kind of the big unusual one on the label. Is uh, there's a number on the barrel. That's the the main number, uh, but not one on the receiver. And did they do any internal parts? Because I know like the MLE eighteen seventy three revolvers had like every single little part numbered. No, none of the internals. Oh, that stinks. When when did they stop doing that? Do you do you know? Um, let's see. I think it was with the Lebel. The eighty fives have more serial numbered parts. See, I know that the eighteen seventy eight Kropacheks, like the nose cap and the barrel bands, are serialized. Um, there are some weird ones, like the the M twenty seven Lebels. Actually, some of them do have serialized like sling swivels, hmm. but not the standard Lebel. Okay. All right, this one I didn't know worked this way. Can you use a three-round end block in a five-round and vice versa, both ways? Yes. The only exception being you can use a five-round clip in a three-round gun, but you can only load it with three rounds. Ah, okay. You do that, and the bottom of the clip will stick out the bottom. (laughs) Will work. Um what they did the three round clip has the latch right in the middle and when they designed the five round clip they put two of the little locking catches in exactly the same dimensional location as on the three round clips so that they didn't have uh, to modify any of the magazine the the clip catch hardware and so yeah as a result you can lock oh, a five round clip, three round gun that's awesome it looks okay. stupid and clumsy <laughs> to load but you can. and then let's see Oh, here, uh, my local gun store has a Bertier that they claim is chambered in 7.5 by 54. I've never heard of this, but assume it was a World War I modification, but I don't see any markings World on it. World War II. Oh, sorry, yeah, World War II modification, but I don't see any markings on it out of the ordinary compared to my own Bertier in 8mm Labelle. What should I look for, or did they, or is there some, did they make a mistake? Um, there is such a thing. It is the model M34, and it will say M34 on the receiver. Uh, it will also have a fixed flush magazine fed by stripper clips on it. Wow. So okay. you won't have an opening in the bottom for the clip to come out. So the M34, okay. Cool. I've heard about the M27s, but I haven't heard about the 34. So the, the 27 is the Labelle converted to 7.5, and the 34 is the Bertier converted to 7.5. Ah. Uh. The label was pretty much an experimental thing. They did like 1,200 of them over about 10 years. The Bertier was the one that they decided was the more economical conversion. And so they made 60-some thousand. And there were actually, a lot of them were used in 1940, uh, in the very beginning of World War II. Nice. So that's a nice, an available round, you know, nowadays. Is it okay to shoot these today? Nothing wrong with them? Yep, the Bertier was a smokeless powder gun from the beginning. It's got a two lug oh, yeah. rotating. Yeah, they're safe. I feel like you I mean, don't really see a whole lot. about your particular individual rifle, maybe totally screwed up, but <laughs> the design is fine. So, 
I feel like you don't really see many of those. If they made 60,000, did, did a lot of them end up in Africa or something like that? Um, I don't think so, but a lot of them may not have survived World War II. They're relatively scarce today. I, I've seen one listed as a birthday in 7.5, like ever. I don't even, wasn't sure they existed. But you said thousands. Yeah, yeah, mine's 60-some thousand serial number. I have a pretty late one. Um, and the full designation there, the model 1907-15M34. What is worth. Okay. All right, we have a how do I tell trio. The how do I tell a LaBelle was a civilian-made LaBelle. Um, it will say manufactured design siglo de Saint-Étienne on the top of the barrel. Now, someone said they don't have bayonet lugs or stacking rods. Is that also true? Um, hold on one. Oh, he's got oh. one. And I don't know what he said. He said something in French. I heard saint yeah. at the end, but the yeah, rest of it... It was <laughs> on the top of the barrel, not on the side of the receiver, I guess. I want to get him to pronounce S-A-C-M. Suck him. <laughs> I just wanted to double check. Um, civilian labels are really quite scarce. Uh, I have one. And it's deactivated, Shock. and I imported it from France. Like, I've seen one in the U.S., and it's in the Cody Museum. Uh, they do have bayonet lugs. They're standard oh. designs like that. Okay. Uh, one of the things, however, is the the stacking rod on the LaBelle is part of the 1893 update. So you look at a LaBelle, it'll say Model 1886 M93. And the French were really good, and virtually every rifle, every LaBelle went through that 93 upgrade. But yeah. the civilian ones didn't because they weren't in the military. And so the civilian ones, many of them, if they were made before 1893, which a lot of them were. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Right. They so you'll have, have a, it'll be all the original 1886. Exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it'll have a bayonet. You'll have the little bayonet lugs on it. But it will not have a stacking rod and it won't have the little reinforcing straps on the rear sight. Um, mm -hmm. It also won't have the gas shield on the bolt head. And they're very rare. Well, here. Yes. Yeah, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, they're rare in France, too. They just aren't that. Not that many people bought them. The other how do I tell was a, how do I tell a firearm was a French capture. You know, Austria-Hungary put AZF and Germany put the Deutschreich mark. So Ooh, that's a really good question. Did I they mark them in any? I have never run across that I can think of anything I recognized as a French capture foreign rifle. I have no idea. That's a really good question. Maybe safe to assume they did nothing. <laughs> right? They marked nothing on them? Yeah. It's certainly possible. It's quite possible that they did not have a... Boy. Like, look what the Germans weird. would do. The Germans renamed them. They had a, such an intricate naming system, yeah. remarked them. Hmm. To be honest, I never really thought. They had the K98K's K98 post-war that they put the different sling swivel on, but were there any particular markings for those? So they tended, the, the post-war stuff, they tended to put a five-pointed star on as a, a okay. French mark. You'll find that on the Mausers, you'll find it on P38s, you'll find it on, uh, what else? Mostly Mausers and P38s. But that's World oh. War II, post-World War II during occupation production. Like, yeah, yeah the idea of World War, you know, French use of refurbed enemy weapons, I'm just not sure. Hmm. I'll have to look thinks up. It's possible that 
being French, they just didn't do that. <laughs> Which seems weird, but also seems plausible. So I'm not sure. Yeah, because they had the star in like their World War I weapons from other countries, like the Spanish pistols. I wonder if it's just yeah. something out there hidden that no one's ever thought about. I don't know. I should find out. I think the last how do I tell is uh, how do you know if the a firearm went through rework at a, a French government arsenal that they marked them? You know, like if a 1917 did, you could tell in two seconds. Yeah, so you can't, there, there isn't a specific marking. There are a couple telltale signs. Uh, one of them is basically a World War, on the label, a, or a Berthier, a World War I barrel date. Well, not necessarily on a Berthier. Um, if you have my book, you can find production dates based on serial number. And if the barrel date doesn't match that production date, it is virtually entirely because the barrel was replaced uh, later after production. That's pretty easy to find on labels. You'll find a crap ton of labels with um, World War I barrel dates, and the vast majority of those were made 10 years before World War I. Okay. Um, the wow. other way you can tell is when the gun was originally accepted into service, it got this round stamp on the stock with the month and the year and the arsenal. But replacement stocks did not get those. Like if a gun went through refurbishment, it did not get a new stamp like that. So if you have a stock that does not have that round stamp, it's oh, a refurb. Okay. It's like the opposite. The other countries added stamps. We have to look for less stamps. Right. The French just rebuilt <laughs> it. Now it's good. Here you go. Um, you can sometimes tell when a serial number has been ground off and restamped. That's done with refurbs um or rebuilds, oh, it was like repairs the, like oh they do that for the, the stock so mill that out and then put in a new piece of wood with a new cereal but that's something that you can definitely find um that they did sometimes um i was thinking mostly bolt handles the the bolt serial number you will find sometimes you can tell like oh they clearly milled off the old number and restamped it to match the gun the master serial number on the gun was the barrel so you won't ever find a barrel number restamped when they re-arsenal, they would make it match? They would force match? Yep. Oh, wow. Yep. Now, these are the guns that went through, a, like, a formal rehaul or uh, overhaul at the arsenal. So, I'm sure there were, you know, field armors who would, uh, you know, you bolt broke or something, we'll swap it out for this one with a good bolt where the belt and barrel's bent. Not a big deal. Throw the rifle right back into service. But... The guns that were collected up and sent back to the arsenal to be formally rebuilt, yeah, they renumbered those to match. Okay. Um, also, one one quick addendum, just to make sure, um, those round uh, round L marks on the stocks are an army thing. So, for example, Moss forty fours do not have them because they were adopted by the navy, not the army, and the navy didn't do that. So that's that's a rare <laughs> thing, but. Okay. Hmm. Did they do something else, or they just didn't do that? No, they just didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, a lot more complicated than I realized. Yeah. All right. Speaking of labels and their manufacturers, we have an Is It True trio for the manufacturer. Mm. First one right. is the Etablishment... Uh, excuse my friend. <laughs> Etablishment Conte Souza only made receivers and barrels. Establishment. Conte Souza. That, what he said. Okay. 
Susa. ETF. Exactly yeah. that. <laughs> and the question, is it true that they only made receivers and barrels? Uh, they only made receivers. And are they, so are they less valuable or more, or less collectible or more collectible? I have not seen any real difference. Um, they're only Bertiers, so they're not Labelles. The Bertiers are generally less desirable than Labelles, in my experience. I think I think the Bertier is more interesting, but the Labelle is worth more. Um, yeah, the Content Souza is yeah. just they made they were a contract maker of receivers. You can tell who actually made the gun by the serial number because the French uh, letter prefixes will identify what arsenal they were. Um, a, B, and C were uh, Chateau and then um, uh, F through Q was Saint-Étienne, and R, S, and T were Tull. Oh, so... In the book, I have a list, I think, of exactly who got the Content Souza receivers, and I don't remember off the top of my head. And I believe the the Moss 36 started with F, right? Yes. Is that because of that same kind of reason that they that block was, say, the Etienne or whatever? It was made at Saint-Étienne, and Saint-Étienne always started at F. Until the FAMAS. Wow, okay, that's a good one. Then the last one for this trio is during World War One, two made over 200,000 labels and was the only factory making new ones during the conflict. That is correct. Uh, Tull was the arsenal that had been in charge of actually like refurbishing and repairing labels after real production ended. So um, Saint-Étienne basically shut down in 1901. Uh, Chatelarot shut down in 1901. Toul continued to make guns as necessary. Um, and they were the refurb center. So when war breaks out and they want to restart Labelle production, Toul is the one that has a production line ready to go. So they do continue to make new Labelles there, although I think largely from existing stocks of parts. And then Chatelarot and Saint-Étienne have been making Bertiers. And so that's the whole story of the 0715 Bertier. Is okay. This is a, a cheaper gun than the Labelle. We already have the production tooled up for it. Let's go ahead and just make this and, and adapt it to the Labelle bayonet rather than try to restart Labelle production. All right, here's one more here in the... Uh ones here uh i have two bertiers a long rifle and a carbine that both have a vast amount of odd repairs done to the stocks over 10 each and sometimes they're in what seems like meaningless spots in the middle of the comb or on the underside between the bands is this a french bubble or a legit french arsenal work and why does it seem like only french guns go this overboard uh because they're french and as far as i can tell that is original french repair work yeah some of so, it is wild so, so like yeah. like in the middle of the comb i have one that just it's like a little not even a square it's like a trapezoid in the middle of the comb cut out what is the reason for that type of repair? i would expect some piece of shrapnel took a chunk out of the stock there so they cut it out and fitted a nice little replacement so why was it deemed better to have just some sort of full wood there than a a piece of <laughs> hole or a yeah piece seem, of... seems very time consuming yeah, but you can't have a big chunk out of it. Um, I, I expect this is part of a repair process where a gun gets pulled off of a battlefield because, you know, we had 30,000 casualties, so we 
go pick up all the rifles and send them back to the factory to be repaired and reissued. Uh-huh. And they're going to repair everything that's wrong with the gun. Now, if that was just Pierre dropped it and Jean picks it up, fine, no big deal. It's gonna, if that's the only thing that's wrong with it, they'll just keep using it. But eventually, it's going to get cycled back to an arsenal when something really bad happens. And then they're going to fix everything. I feel like they're showing off a little bit when they cut out the old serial number and inlay another piece beautifully in, uh, with the new serial number. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when the, the Austria, Austro-Hungarians just put an, a line through the old serial number. So vulgar. With the Bulgarians. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Like, what sort, what sort of barbarians would just scrape it out in a line? Come on. It's, it's oh. strange. I love the M95 stocks. I have like three or four different serial numbers on them. Yeah. <laughs> You'll see that with like Polish uh, labels and Bertiers. They'll just stick their own serial number next to the original one on the stock. Anyway. <laughs> so actually, that's most of our questions here besides questions on what we always forget because we talk about how beautiful the guns are and the history and the specifications, but we forget that they actually shoot so uh, we just had a couple of quick questions that uh, one that I probably primarily wanted to know was being a lefty. What is the, the, the main guns that really give you a problem? Bull pups. Yeah. <laughs> My guess was the AUG club fired that left-handed and gotten brass in the teeth. Yeah. The odds not a good one. The L85 is really bad because not only does it have the ejection port, it's also got a reciprocating bolt handle. Oh, knock your teeth out. Um, oh, God. Yeah, pretty much all the all the first gen bullpups, except the FAMAS, because it's awesome, uh, have that uh, issue. That's the main one. Um, ARs that don't have brass deflectors will sometimes hit me in the face with brass. It's not nearly as severe that just like it's a ricochet, but it's annoying. That's funny. Next question. So was there any gun that surprised you based from your expectations? I was like either the recoil was significantly worse than you thought or was more complicated to work than you would that you thought or was something that everyone says that they enjoy shooting so much and you did not enjoy it um one of the ones that that really is most memorably surprising to me is the Johnson light machine gun which is a fantastically convenient gun to handle and carry and it's it's pretty light it's like 12 or 14 pounds it's a really handy light machine gun and it's firing 30-06, and it weighs, you know, 12 or 14 pounds. So it's like 50% heavier than an M1 Garand, and yet it kicks harder than an M1. Hmm. Like, significantly harder. You go prone and shoot an M1, and it's just fine. And you go prone and shoot a Johnson, even in semi-auto, and it kicks the crap out of you. And so I started asking, you know, whenever I run into someone who owns one of them, I ask them if they've shot it and what they think. I think all but one person has, has responded to me that, you know, that thing shoots or recoils way harder than I thought it would. Hmm. And I think it's hmm. just a quirk of the action where the bolt's still going pretty darn fast when it smacks into the back of the receiver. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Yeah, I did not expect that. They, they didn't make any after the war, right? That was it? Correct. So or, I guess everybody realized it was too much. <laughs> and the, the Johnson rifle is not too bad, though. No, the Johnson rifle is yeah. fine. Yeah. A light machine gun is like a mule. Well, Melvin Johnson was uh, right one out of two times. 
Well, yeah, Melvin Johnson was like six foot something and a behemoth of a man, and he probably didn't even <laughs> notice the difference. That's right. Did you, did you have any accidents ever, like uh, besides your uh, uh, your what do you call it, uh, Henry yeah, yeah, yeah. Henry yeah. Chamber thing? But did you ever have any uh, squib loads that were close calls, like with or out of battery uh, detonation, like the bolt didn't close fully, like um, bad I've had a case hand, I've had a handful of out of batteries on nine millimeter submachine guns, but they're really not that big a deal on nine millimeter sub gun. Like it goes pop, and there's a bunch of smoke. And you look, and there's a totally mangled piece of brass, and you dump it out and just keep going. Um, <laughs> it's it's a blowback gun. It's in the submachine gun. It's just not that big a deal. And when you've got an open bolt gun with a fixed firing pin, it's kind of just a risk that you accept it'll happen inevitably. Is is it scary shooting other people's guns, like not knowing how well they care for it, and and you know what I mean, a hundred percent everything about um, the gun you're about to shoot? Yeah, potentially. It depends a lot on the gun, especially if it's a mechanism I'm not familiar with. Um, I shot a Shogun shotgun, and that was kind of nerve wracking at first because it sure looks like the bolt's just going to come right off the back of the gun into your face. <laughs> uh, it doesn't, but. It's a little nerve-wracking to shoot. Yeah, those are... Um, I can't think of any other real problems I've had. Um, occasionally, I'll have a machine gun where the the fire control system runs away. And that's that's fun. Um, <laughs> that's fun. So with my, my general practice with a machine gun, and you, you often don't see this on camera because it's something that I'll do before we start filming, uh, is load like three rounds and and set it to semi-auto and see if it actually fires one at a time and then you set it to full auto and give it like five rounds and see if if you can you know if you can do a, a short burst and let off the trigger and it stops shooting great that's what it's supposed to do but if it's gonna run away you, you only give it you know five rounds to work with so it's not that big of an issue right yeah that's so those are machine gun guy problems not many people have those problems <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, I am extremely careful to keep all of my 300 blackout magazines marked and not interchange them with 5.56. Yeah, I've seen a lot of those. Yeah. Yep. I haven't done one myself and I don't plan to, but like, that's a really stupid issue with 300 blackout that it will chamber in a 5.56. And by the way, officially it will not. If you use bullets... That conform to the the official spec of 300 blackout. That's not possible, but nobody does. They use the readily available 308 bullets, and those do allow it to happen. Oops. Yeah. Yep. So there's the infamous video you have of Turkish eight millimeter ammo cracking the K98 K stock. Um, I have a friend who lost <laughs> uh, two fingers to a hang fire in an MG34 in, with Ooh. Turkish eight millimeter. Oh. Um, and I, Man. boy, back in the day when it was more common and idiots were using it or people who didn't know better sometimes, I probably knew about half a dozen or so machine guns that were blown up by Turkish eight millimeter. Wow. Like it's, it's a couple specific years and I don't remember exactly which ones anymore. Just, I just, I don't use Turkish eight millimeter. It's not worth it. It's a powder that when it degrades, it breaks down and becomes more, uh, it becomes higher pressure. Um, some powder chemical, like some 
some powder types do that and some don't. And Turkish does. Just don't use Turkish 8. I don't care how cheap it is. If you're going to buy it, buy it to pull the bullets and reuse them in your own hand loads. Don't. Yes, I've seen don't shoot far too many with cracked brass brand new from the factory. Speaking of reloading, is that something that you do for your firearms? I don't. I used to, and I just don't have the time anymore. When you did reload, what what did you make? Was it harder to find calibers? <laughs> no, I was uh, super totally dirt poor, and so I hand-loaded yeah. 45 so that I could shoot my 1911. Nice. Yep. I was, I'm sure I hand-loaded some other stuff, some rifle stuff of some sort, but it was the vast majority was 45 auto. All right. You've definitely been asked this before, but I just need to ask any guns that you have not yet shot that you is on the top of your list that you need to get your hands on. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Got to be something. And pretty much everything I haven't shot, I'd like to shoot. Anti-tank rifles are one of the few that I kind of keep deliberate track of with a lot of like nine millimeter submachine guns. One... If you have shot 20 of them, you kind of shot all of them. Like, maybe that sounds a little bit haughty to say, but there's a lot left for me to discover in 9mm open bolt submachine guns. But anti-tank rifles I am kind of keeping track of because I've shot, I don't know, half of them. I've shot the Lottie, the Solothurn, the Tank of Air, the Boys. But I haven't shot the Polish 35. I haven't shot... I haven't shot the German ones, but I don't know that I ever will on those. I really kind of like to shoot a PTRS and a PTRD. That'd be cool. I haven't had the chance to do that. Yeah. Um, it'll probably be a Canada thing, I expect. Like, they're more common up there than they are down here. Um, I think that's the... So there is something you haven't shot. I think that's Russian import laws, like the ability to import from Russia, which obviously they can't now, but they used to be able to do more than us. And they don't have a destructive device thing quite so much, or they didn't for a while. So, but things are changing every day. You know, you yeah. never know. Yeah, never <laughs> in Canada. Those poor guys. <laughs> so on range days, do you usually take like only a few things to film and shoot, or just shoot for fun, or do you do like a, a bunch of different things? Have a bunch of rifles and pistols and mix it up. Sadly, I don't have much chance to just shoot for fun. Um, Almost all the shooting I do is for filming. uh, And I don't get to shoot as much as I'd like to, just because I'm traveling and editing and doing book stuff and doing a lot of things other than actually shooting. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's vast majority is shooting for filming. Um, Now, I guess there's, there's sort of two sides to that. Like, when I go to a competition... I'm doing that for filming, but that's also shooting for fun. So, you know, I just watched you do a competition with the greener shotgun, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that was an interesting one. Yeah, they don't always go really well, but they are fun. Usually. <laughs> but that was fun to see. That was your choice. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's funny. So on your range days, you just take whatever's next up in the lineup for videos. Pretty much. Uh, I went out to the range today and it was, uh, let's see, so I, I checked zero on a Vector CP1 and a 380 Makarov for an upcoming match. I did, we did a little bit of shooting 
with a Mossberg 870 that was rebuilt into a replica of the shotgun from Halo. Oh, I think that. that's cool. <laughs> and we filmed a video with a Russian Makarov on this incredibly stupid tactical Russian uh, self-cocking holster for the Makarov. Oh, the Spetsnaz uh, oh, holster. Yeah, with, yeah, well, made for Spetsnaz, which means we made this hoping to sell it to Spetsnaz, even though they never actually used it. <laughs> I zeroed, uh, zeroed a rifle for a hunting trip that I have coming up. Very nice. That, that was actually today's range day. Do you ever hunt with Milserp? Not yet. That's a whole other crew of people. Yeah. Posting there. Yeah. <laughs> Milserp hunting yeah, rifles. Confident I, in my <laughs> I am all into making it as absolutely unfair as possible in my to my advantage. <laughs> Sign me up for scope, suppressor, massively overpowered expanding bullet. Yeah. I just want meat to eat. <laughs> I do use my K31 for hunting, but it has one of the clamp-on scope mounts, and it works great, actually. Nice. I bet it would, yeah. Huh. And you do all these competitions. How many do you think you do a year? And how many would you like to do a year? I mean, ideally, I'd shoot two per month. We have a backup gun match, and we have a two-gun match here in Tucson every month. And I'd love to shoot both of them every month. I'd probably get to shoot about half of them because of travel. Uh, and then you can add on... I, I always make sure to be able to shoot Finnish Brutality and Lynx Brutality. So those are two extra per year. Um, <laughs> yeah, those are awesome. Oh, they're amazing. They're fantastic. Yeah. You volunteered to do that. That's funny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's yeah, it's bringing on the pain. It's, it's the good kind of pain. <laughs> um, we've done, we're making um, the, a midnight match, a nighttime match, a regular annual thing now. So that one I get to shoot because I actually run that match. So that'll be in March. Cool. Uh, that'll yeah. be cool to see. Not so much Milser than nighttime match. <laughs> Actually, last year I tried to get my hands on a an M1 carbine snooper scope setup. <laughs> that'd be oh. that'd be so much fun. Um, no, it would giant. In <laughs> retrospect, I'm really glad it didn't work because that thing is so limited in its utility that in any sort of match that's set up for modern stuff, it would be completely useless. That's a 25-yard, 50-yard absolute tops sort of gun. And yeah. After running our match last year, I realized, like, wow, if I'd had an M1 carbine with a, a World War II infrared scope, it would have been a complete... It would have been so bad, it probably wouldn't even be entertaining to watch. <laughs> that's to watch that. That sounds cool. Still would have been yeah cool to look at. I guess yeah, like the optimal level of failure is is when it's clearly painful, but there's like a vague hope that you might get to the end of the stage. <laughs> that's that's I think what people like seeing. With that M1 carbine, it would have been I go to the first shooting position and I just stand there and miss until the timer runs out, <laughs> which which isn't nearly as fun. Well, it would have looked good doing it. It would be good still shots. Yes. I'd, I'd love to get one and do a video with it shooting. But even that's going to be difficult to arrange. That's a, add, that, add that to the list with the anti-tank rifles. Yeah. Yep. All right. So before we let you go, uh, Kelly and I were talking before about if you're going to do any more future collabs or 
any other special projects? I know we already talked about you working on so many things with your apps and books and all this other stuff. But as far as teaming up with anybody, any plans in the works? Um, I'd love to. It's a uh, geography is the biggest hurdle. So uh, one place where are you, are you close to anyone in your app? Are you close to uh, geographically to anyone? No, not really. That's associated uh, with the app. Nine Hole Reviews is the closest. They're in Texas, and I'm in Arizona. Uh, yeah, that's right. that's as good as it gets. Yeah, bit of a good. So one of the we have a an occasional series that is exclusive to the app that is all collaborations, and that's uh, what I call the Shosha Challenge, which is a a scored course of fire run with a Shosha World War One automatic rifle, and it's great Whoa. because. No matter how much shooting anybody has done, they've never actually shot a show shot. Or like, best case, they put a mag through right. it once off the bench at, at some machine gun shoot. And so I put together a 75-round course of fire that is firing from the hip, firing from the shoulder, bursts. Uh, you know. 75 <laughs> rounds. Yeah. So, well, five magazines. That's great. So we load the magazine to 15 rounds. You get five of them. And you've got five separate stages that you shoot. Um, and it's scored. There's no time limit, but your your score is how many hits out of 75 rounds. So is it and... a bring your own Shosha type ordeal? Nope. No, because <laughs> nobody has a Shosha either. Everyone runs it with my Shosha. Uh, and we've done two so far. Um, the first one was Administrative Results, a YouTube channel. Oh, yeah. Because he actually is really close. Uh, he lives in Phoenix. I live in Tucson. Um, the second one was with uh, a really cool guy I met who was a, a volunteer fighting in uh, Kurdistan and in Ukraine recently. Um, he actually did really well at it. I'm going to be doing one uh, coinciding with a shot show with Yari Lina, who's the CEO of Vars Deleka, and he's the guy who runs Finnish Brutality. Nice. He's a, a Finnish Jaeger uh, reservist, really cool guy. And then I plan to do them with Whenever I can get him out here, I want to do it with Bloke on the Range. I'm definitely going to do it with Henry um, and maybe Josh from Nine Hole. Like, that's a, a collaboration series that I really want to, to continue. Cool. We will continue. That's fun, yeah. Um, beyond that, I actually did, I did a video with Jonathan Ferguson at the Royal Armories when I was there about a month ago. And that'll be posting sometime in December. So it's actually not far off. That's a fun one. Um, we did a little and all your latest updates, like you don't use social media really, right? Your 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 latest updates are on forgottenweapons.com. Yeah. Um I use Instagram. That's probably the best place to find stuff. I don't really use Facebook anymore. Oh, yeah, YouTube, Instagram, those are the two places. All right. And lastly, is there anything that the average listener can do to help you in any way? like get you access to documents or or things you're looking for like you know what i'm saying is there any way that someone can help um fashion i am usually open to loaner guns to film but i often feel like an asshole when people offer me things because like my standards are kind of high for what's worth borrowing to film so i get a lot of offers for guns right. that i have to turn down i long time trying to come up with the most polite way to say no thank you <laughs> But I do get a fair number of interesting guns from viewers. Um, and that's always really cool. Like, I'm happy to do that as long as I'm not, like, in the middle of a trip. As long as I'm actually at home for a long enough period to get the gun, film it, send it back. I feel 
I, like, I won't take a gun on loan if I know that I'm going to end up sitting on it for three months before I can do anything with it. Uh, but there are definitely people out there who have really cool stuff that's great to, to borrow and fill. Uh, Thias was talking about like the also the, the, the logistics of shipping it, and now it's your responsibility, and yeah, it's, yeah. it's nerve-wracking. The whole so thing is Legal stuff to get it back if they're in a less friendly state and a stuff bit. like that. Yeah, there right. are some of those issues. Um, typically, people will send me something through an FFL, and I have an FFL, so I can receive stuff myself easily. That's not a problem. Sending it back can be. Um, you know, it depends on the details of the, a person's particular circumstances, but generally what I'll do is I get it from an FFL, and I just send it back to that FFL. All right, so... If they do want to tell you they have this rare gun or something, just email you some, somewhere? Admin at ForgottenWeapons.com. Boom. Easy. All right, fellas. I think we've come to the end of the show here. And, uh, this is beautiful. I could, t- I could talk to you all, all day and night, though, Ian. Really oh, appreciate yeah. it. This has been great. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Oh, my God. Absolutely. It was fun. Yeah, been a been a fan of the channel for years, so this is super cool to get get to talk to you and do a do a nice podcast with you. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure. And I'm looking forward to the next book and the next project Sweet. and the app updates and all the new ideas that this the app will spurn now with all these projects you're working on and I don't think I even so. realized managed to mention the fact that the World War II book arrived at our warehouse yesterday. Ooh. And start shipping like today or tomorrow. Nice. So, yeah. So just in we time have... for Christmas, you're saying? Yes. We should actually get them all out to people in time for Christmas, which is finally that's really cool. It's the first time we've been able to pull that off. <laughs> that's awesome. That we is got awesome. a couple thousand orders to fulfill, and they'll take they're going to take longer than I'd like, but but they are going out now. Well, you can get them headstand publishing. You can get your orders in for all his books are there. So exactly. And I don't know if I did I say it before. If you don't have the book, you're an asshole. Get the book. The, all the get the French book for sure. Work start there and work your way up. And um, so good luck on the app and everything. And if if you need a podcast uh, with the New Yorker Texan, like I said, we're here for you. And one more question I forgot to ask. Yeah. What is the pistol in your Forgotten Weapons symbol? Is that a French 35A? It isn't anything. Uh, it's literally it. nothing. It's just, it's an F. Uh, <laughs> I was hoping it was a French pistol. Nine o'clock has no actual relevance. It's just the time where you can actually see the hands in the rest of the logo. <laughs> oh, the secret's out. I get that question periodically. That's funny. Felt some Illuminati stuff. Uh, yes, that's actually right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, thank you, Ian, so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That was awesome. Yeah, this is great. You are quite welcome. That was fun. Well, it actually was fun. So I'm starting to lose my voice now, but. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much.